You're listening to Stream of Conscience, Beckett's Religious Liberty Podcast. Today's episode is Synods and Statutes. I'm Hannah Smith, Senior Counsel at Beckett. And I'm Katie Geary, a Beckett Fellow. Today we bring you a story with humble beginnings, but one grand finale. It began with a small, unassuming church in Michigan and their volunteer attorney. And it ended at the U.S. Supreme Court with one of the most important religious liberty decisions in the last 50 years. Do houses of worship have the freedom to choose their own ministers? Or does the government have a say? We'll answer that question with this case. Our story starts in June 2004. It was the end of the year at a small school run by Hosanna Tabor Evangelical Lutheran Church in Redford, Michigan. A fourth grade teacher at the school, Cheryl Parrish, fell ill, and it took a while for her doctors to figure out a diagnosis. Narcolepsy. Her condition meant that she regularly fell asleep in class. Needless to say, it was hard for her to teach with this condition. Yeah, she wasn't ready to come back in the fall. And the church went to great lengths to preserve her job. That's Doug Laycock, one of the nation's leading authorities on the law of religious liberty and a professor at the University of Virginia Law School. We worked with Doug on the Hosanna Tabor case. They did not hire a replacement teacher in the fall. They, at one point, had three grades combined into a single classroom. And of course, the parents were complaining. Um, And Cheryl Parrish kept saying, you know, my doctor says I'll be able to return to work by this date and by this date and by this date. And it never happened. Uh, she, She was never quite ready to return to work. This sort of thing happens. The school, the church, they understood. But at the same time, they had to do what was in the best interest of the students. So finally, after many months, they hired a replacement teacher. Well, that was right when Cheryl Parrish said, I'm coming back. She caused some kind of a confrontation on the day she tried to return, and then later in the day threatened to sue the church. Now, at first, she claimed that they discriminated against her because she had a disability. But that actually didn't end up being the basis of the lawsuit. What she did sue them for was retaliation. She said... I threatened to sue you about this alleged disability discrimination, and you fired me, and that is black and white, flat, illegal. You cannot do that. Meanwhile, Dino Ware was just another parent at the school. At the time, he'd been out of law school just a few years, and he was establishing his new law practice in Redford. His family had recently started attending the Hosanna Tabor Church, in large part to send their two children to the school. And when the family joined the congregation, the elders caught wind that he was a lawyer. I think there was an insurance thing I, they had asked me to check on because we had a claim. I think it was from a water or a heater or something. That's Dino. And he became this small church's de facto lawyer without even really knowing it. He had heard a bit about Cheryl Parrish's situation as a parent in the school, but he hadn't heard anything about a lawsuit. Until he got a phone call from a lawyer on the opposing side. I think his name was Jim Roach, who indicated that he had been given my number as the lawyer and that basically he had a lock-solid Title VII claim against us for disability discrimination. And in his words, you know, we were going to give him exactly what he asked for, and that was it. Well, Dino got in touch with the school leadership right away because he realized that he had to get to work. The school was being sued by an agency of the federal government, the EEOC, which stands for the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. 
Dino's practice mostly consisted of court-appointed criminal defense. He felt totally out of his element on this case, but he took it because the truth was the church couldn't afford to hire anyone else. Dino took on the case pro bono. I was fearful that I would mess something up, that if I, that if I did not know what I was doing, I was gonna mess something up and put my church in a bad situation. And at the time, I didn't understand why we were getting sued by the EOC, because I had never seen that. I mean, I had seen the EOC sue corporations, but I had never seen the EOC sue a little small church in a little town over one person, a case that involved one person. Later, Dino said he realized that the EEOC probably thought they could easily win the case and set some important precedent. But Dino did his homework and came across an important legal doctrine under the First Amendment that had been on the books for some 40 years. It's called the ministerial exception. And the reason uh, that there's an exception for ministers uh, is that we don't want judges and juries deciding who your minister should be. If there's anything that's at the core of religious liberty, it's a religious body's right to choose its own leadership. The ministerial exception gives churches and houses of worship full authority to choose their own ministers, free from government intrusion. The ministerial exception would end up being the crux of the case. You may be wondering, so why does a legal doctrine about ministers apply to a case involving an elementary school teacher? Well, Cheryl Parrish wasn't just a teacher at the Hosanna Tabor School. She taught religion. She led her students in prayer. She led chapel services, in addition to teaching non-religious subjects. More importantly, she had the title of a commissioned minister. It's the Missouri Synod Lutherans. The Lutheran church body to which Hosanna Tabor belongs. Who have a somewhat unusual structure. They have a sort of levels of, of, of ministers. So the, the pastor is, is the head of the church and, and he's an ordained minister. But then they have this intermediate position called commissioned minister. That position is more than a mere title. And a commissioned minister requires six college level theology courses and requires a call from a congregation. And the idea of the call goes all the way back to Martin Luther. And then once called, a called minister, a commissioned minister, can be discharged only by a two-thirds vote of the congregation. You recall that Cheryl had said that she would sue the church and school? Well, it turns out that that goes directly against the church's teachings, which say you can't sue other Christians in civil court. And the Missouri Senate had a clear body of rules, disputes over ministry must be resolved internally to the church. They had a grievance procedure that was independent of the local congregation and had an appeals process. She didn't use it. After she threatened to sue the church, the congregation voted to dismiss her, which made this case a lot more complicated. So when the church went up against the EEOC in the district court, Dino included the ministerial exception in his motion to dismiss, which meant he asked the court to dismiss the case without any further inquiry or trial. Once I filed the uh, motion on the ministerial exception, the court agreed with me and granted our motion. But the case was far from over. The EEOC appealed the decision and took the case up to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. This was my first case in the Sixth Circuit. This was a big case for a new attorney just out of law school. He was overwhelmed, but he knew he had to keep going. It was his calling. I do know between me and God, I always felt that by him leading me into the field of law, to practice of law, that he was going to use me. 
At the oral argument at the Sixth Circuit, the judges focused their questions on the ministerial exception. Specifically, the judges started questioning, was Cheryl Parrish, in fact, a minister of the church? I said, if you decide that she was not a minister, then we should lose this case. And? We lost the case. That was in 2010. And what the Sixth Circuit, which includes Detroit, what they said in this case was, yes, there is a ministerial exception, but she's not a minister. She's not a religious leader. She's just a school teacher. And most of her time is spent with the secular curriculum, not the religious curriculum. Dina was disappointed. At this point, he was stretched very thin. And the next step would entail asking the Supreme Court of the United States to take the case. So that's when Beckett got involved. A Beckett lawyer called up Dino and offered him our help. I mean, he said the Beckett Fund wanted to help. They would do whatever we needed them to do. And, you know, he wanted to talk to me and get in touch with me as soon as possible because he understood, I mean, like I understood that there was, you know, we were under some time constraints if we were going to do anything else. For Dino, this was a significant offer. And I finally felt like, you know, that maybe, you know, I I had a chance to to kind of win this once and for all. So, Hannah, why was it at this point that Beckett got involved? That's a great question, Katie. Beckett is a small and focused team. Most of our work is done at the appellate and at the U.S. Supreme Court level so that we can have the greatest impact on the law. And in this case, there was a potential to make an enormous impact. Because? Because the Supreme Court had never heard a case that involved this issue. So Beckett and Doug Laycock teamed up to ask the Supreme Court to take this case and decide once and for all that the ministerial exception exists. One of the most important criteria for the Supreme Court to take a case is that there's an important issue on which the lower courts have disagreed. They had never taken a ministerial exception case because the lower courts didn't disagree. The ministerial exception had existed for 40 years, and all of the federal courts of appeals to address the issue had held that the ministerial exception means ministers can't sue their churches. But the courts of appeals did disagree on what standards should apply to decide if someone is actually a minister. Some courts said you should find she's a minister under one approach, and other courts said, no, we're going to use a different approach. And that's a classic circuit split. And the Supreme Court takes cases all the time where there's disagreement like that. So Beckett and Doug asked the Supreme Court to take our case. In our petition, we explained that there was a disagreement about the standard to decide whether someone is a minister and therefore should receive the protection of the ministerial exception. And we argued that in this case, Cheryl Parrish was definitely a minister. That's her title. She's got a call from the congregation. She's got these theology courses. This woman is a minister. And that's what the lower courts disagree about. And that's what you should, Supreme Court, you should review. The Supreme Court decided to hear the case. And that's when the government made a strategic error. In its briefs before the Supreme Court, the federal government argued that there was no ministerial exception at all. They said that under the First Amendment, churches should be treated no differently than your local Elks Lodge. Justice Scalia found that argument extraordinary. Black on white in the text of the Constitution are special protections for religion. And you say that makes no difference. And Justice Kagan agreed with him. I too find that amazing, that you think that the free ex- neither the Free Exercise Clause nor the Establishment Clause has anything to say about a church's relationship with its own employees. The government was clearly off the rails, so the justices pressed them. Wasn't there any case where a ministerial exception must apply? 
And finally, the government said, well, okay, the Catholic priesthood. They said, a woman can't sue the Catholic Church to become a priest. That's a special case. But then they had great difficulty explaining what was special about it. How was that different from our case? And the only difference was nearly the whole country knows that women can't be Catholic priests, but nobody ever heard of this rule that a Lutheran minister can't sue her church over a question about the ministry. And Justice Alito said, well, wait, that seems biased. When you say that, are you not implicitly making a judgment about the relative importance of the Catholic doctrine that only males can be ordained as priests and the Lutheran doctrine that a Lutheran should not sue the church in civil courts? I can't reconcile your position on those two issues without coming to the conclusion that you think that the Catholic doctrine is older, stronger, and entitled to more respect than the Lutheran doctrine. And then there was the government's claim that if someone performs important secular duties in addition to their religious functions, then they shouldn't be protected by the ministerial exception at all. The government's position was your functions have to be exclusively religious. If she teaches a secular course, she's out. She, she can sue. The justices all agreed this was an extraordinary, even extreme position. That can't, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that can't be the test. The, the, the Pope is a head of state carrying out secular functions, right? Those are important. So he's not a minister? As you can tell, many of the justices found the government's arguments extreme. So after oral argument was over, we were pretty optimistic. But we still had a few months to wait for a decision. I thought it was 5-4. I was cautiously optimistic that we had the five, uh, but I wasn't at all sure of that. Dino Ware had also gone to Washington, D.C. to be there for oral arguments, so he had heard it all. After giving nearly seven years of his life to this case, he thought it might finally give his church some relief. Actually, I thought we would win. All along, Dino had relied on his faith to move this case forward, and now was no different. I understood that it was the Lord that had helped me. And so I, I, I knew or I felt that I should pray if we won. The decision came down on January 11, 2012. When a minister who has been fired sues her church, alleging that her termination was discriminatory, the First Amendment has struck the balance for us. The church must be free to choose those who will guide it on its way. And the best part... Our opinion is unanimous. I just got on my knees and prayed. I think I did that before I even called anybody back. It was a sweeping win. Um, Ministerial exception is required both by the Free Exercise Clause and by the Establishment Clause, he said. This was enormously important, right, Hannah, for the impact you were talking about earlier? Yeah, I mean, here we had this opportunity to set an extremely important precedent at the U.S. Supreme Court, a precedent that would protect churches across the country when it comes to being able to choose their own ministers. And the Supreme Court couldn't have been clearer. The ministerial exception exists, and it's absolutely vital. And Doug explained well why it is so important. Whether it's the congregation that issues a call, or whether it's a bishop that appoints the pastor, or whether it's you know a conference like the Methodists and the Presbyterians have, those lines of authority are essential to the governance of the church. Without that authority, the church isn't free. It's, it's just not independent. If the government can tell a church who to hire and fire as their spiritual leader, 
then we no longer have the separation of church and state that's so important in this country. So Hosanna Tabor Evangelical Lutheran Church and School won its case. And they won it for more than just their own congregation. They won it for every single church and house of worship across the country. Something amazing here is that this case that ended up being a 9-0 unanimous Supreme Court victory, it all started with a man three years out of law school struggling to run his own practice and do pro bono work for his church. I don't think Dino Ware had this in mind when he was in law school. No, I'm sure he never imagined anything like this. But at the same time, he always knew that God led him into the law for a very specific reason. That's right. He mentioned that he had mentors who were offering to set him up to go to West Point and then on to an Ivy League law school. But he said no. He wanted to get married. And it turns out that choice brought him to the Supreme Court anyway. And I think sometimes if I had went to, to West Point and if I had graduated from the Ivy League law schools, there's no way I would have ever got this case or done this case. Or God forbid, I might have been on the other side of it. But when God has a plan for you, he has a plan for you, and he will find you where you're at. Thank you to Dina Ware and Professor Doug Laycock for granting us interviews for this episode. The Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty is a nonprofit public interest law firm dedicated to defending religious liberty for all. For more information on this case, our work, and Stream of Conscience, visit our website at beckettlaw.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. This is Hannah Smith. And I'm Katie Geary. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>